turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. John Newton is famous for being a great hymn writer, of course, of the hymn Amazing Grace. But before John came to know the Lord, you may not know that he was a godless man. He made his living in the slave trade, in the slave industry. He worked on slave trips, uh, ships from the age of, of being a young boy. He actually was sold into slavery himself for a time and then escaped and went right back to that industry as an investor and began to invest in that trade until he was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Christ opened his eyes to the, the savagery and sinfulness of that trade, he quit that business altogether and ultimately became a pastor and a hymn writer for which he's famous. But the shame and the regret over being involved in that sin never really left him. It, it plagued him. He knew the Lord's grace, his amazing grace, and he trusted in that, and yet he dealt with the constant feeling of regret over what he'd been involved in. But we understand from his later years that he knew how to take that regret over sin and to match it up with God's grace. And we know that because of this famous quote from John Newton near the end of his life, where he says, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. You see, Newton had learned the crucial lesson that every believer must learn, that we must learn this morning, on what do we do when the trials and regrets of life seek to overwhelm us. Well, we turn our eyes not to sin, not to self, and not to circumstance, but to Christ, our gracious Savior. We turn our eyes to his amazing grace. In our text this morning, the author of Hebrews is going to help us do exactly that. He's going to teach us where to turn our gaze when all we see around us is the destruction that sin has brought. You'll remember the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. We've been looking at that every week since we began. Specifically, since verse 5 of chapter 1, we've been looking at a nuance of that theme, that Jesus, as God's divine Son is undeniably superior to the angels. And, of course, we've been working that out over several weeks. We'll put the, the six proofs on the screen for you that we've already studied weeks ago. Th those six proofs came to us in verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1, which led into this great application, a warning in Hebrews chapter 2 that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard because it comes from the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, as we picked up in verse 5 of chapter 2, we saw that the author continued right along with the same arguments. He gave us more proofs of the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. But before we look at those two proofs again, let's read the text from last week because it leads into our text for today. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 through verse 8. The text reads, For... He did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. 
But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. What we saw together in those verses were two further proofs of the superiority of Christ. Proof number seven, dominion is not promised to angels. That came in verse five. Proof number eight, dominion is given to mankind. That came in verses six to eight. In these verses, what we have to see is that the author is laying the foundation for one final proof that we'll see this morning that he will then expound upon for the rest of chapter two. And he's going to do this, of course, again through the lens of Psalm 8, as we saw last week. In Psalm 8, the author took us all the way back to the creation account. And he used the Hebrew poetry or parallelism of of Psalm 8 to underscore the ways that God has blessed mankind. You remember parallelism, the two statements that say the same thing in slightly different ways. That's how Hebrew poetry works. We were reminded that we as human beings are made in the image of God. And as God has made us in his image, he's also set mankind above the rest of creation. Man has been given that responsibility and that stewardship to rule over creation and to subdue it, but also to cultivate it and to care for it. But we ended our time by looking at the author's point and the problem. The point and the problem. The point of what he was saying and the problem that it raises. Here was the point of what we saw last week. It is to man and not angels that God has delegated the responsibility of dominion over his creation. That's the point he was making. But then right after that, he introduces this key problem that leads into our text today. Here's the problem. We do not yet see all things in subjection to mankind. So he he proved from Psalm 8 that we've been made in the image of God and given this role of dominion. But then he said, well, we look around and we don't have it. We don't have this perfect dominion over creation. And we discovered together, we went back to the beginning and saw that because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, man fell into sin and all of creation came under a curse. The relationship of the man with God, with his wife, and with the rest of the created order was corrupted and affected by sin. And that left us with this great conundrum. What is the solution to this devastating problem, this reality that we all live in every day. We've been given dominion, and yet we don't have it. Is man's hope of a right relationship with God gone forever? That's where we left last time. And in response to this, the author is going to tell us that when we look around us and we see that things are not as they are to be, that we're to take our eyes and put them somewhere else. And that somewhere else is what we're going to study this morning. Proof number nine, Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Adam in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. This is our text for today. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. He begins here in verse 9 with the phrase, but we do see him. That word but indicates that he's now introducing a crucial solution to the problem that he introduced last time. 
The problem, as we said, is that because of our sin, all things are not in subjection to us. And so when we look around, we don't see subjection, but we are to focus on what we do see. Notice that that verb see there or to see is in the present tense. It's actually in the present tense in verse 8 when he says what we do not see. And it's also in the present tense when he says but we see him. The reason that matters as you'll remember that in the Greek language the present tense is used to indicate continuous action. So it's as if he is indicating that we are looking around and continually not seeing things in subjection to us. But we're also continually seeing him. Continually. And notice he doesn't turn our attention to a place or a thing, but to a person. With the simple pronoun, him. But we do see him. We see this person. Obviously then, this person, whoever he is, is the solution to the conundrum brought on by sin. And as we explained last week, in response to the sin of Adam and Eve, God punished him and placed all of creation under a curse. And the reason that the sin of Adam is so devastating for us, to the point that it still reaches into our daily reality, is because Adam was serving as our representative. Theologically, we say that he was our federal head. What we mean by that is that Adam stood as an official representative of all of mankind before God. And therefore, his actions affect every single one of us. Now, we understand this concept because of the way that our own government operates. We have the privilege, and it is a privilege in this country, of choosing the men and women who will represent us at different levels of governmental authority. But once that office is chosen through the process of an election, they become our representative. At that point, it doesn't matter if we voted for them or if we didn't vote for them. If they won the election, they do represent us, and the decisions they make will affect us. We get the privilege of of, of voting for congressmen and congresswomen, but we don't get the privilege of voting in Congress. You see the difference? They vote there as our representative, and we are affected by how they vote, even if they've cast a vote that we personally would not have cast. In the same case, or instance, in the same way, God chose Adam as the first created human to stand as our representative so that his actions and his choices affect every single one of us. Last week, we looked at the certain specific mandates that God gave to Adam as our representative, but he also gave him one single law, one single command. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam's obedience to God would be tested based on this one legal requirement, that he was not to eat from this single tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the punishment for doing so is clearly outlined, death. If you do it, you will surely die. Sadly, as we know, Adam and Eve both broke that single command of God, and the consequences for their sin went far more reaching than they could have ever imagined. 
It was passed all the way down to their posterity, every single child other than Christ. Romans 5.18 picks up on this same idea. Paul writes, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. From that one act, all men were condemned. And this is why it's important for us to understand that each of us sins because we are sinners by nature. We are not born in the pre-fall state of Adam in which we're perfectly innocent until we commit our first personal sin. The Bible teaches that we are sinners from conception. We see this in Psalm 51 verse 5. David's writing here, confessing his sin with Bathsheba, and he makes this observation. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Understand that David is, is not casting blame on his mother as if she had committed some sinful act that resulted in his conception. No, he's saying this is a spiritual reality that from the time I was conceived, from the very first moment that I came into existence, I was a sinner because I too was under the condemnation brought by Adam's sin. This sinful nature was an inheritance from our first father, Adam, and it affects every single one of us here this morning. This is the doctrine that goes by the name of total depravity. When we use that term, total depravity, don't misunderstand. We're not saying that mankind or that individuals are as evil as they possibly could be. By God's grace, his common grace, he restrains even unbelievers from being as wicked as they would be if he just released his hands completely. When we say that mankind is totally depraved, what we mean is that it's total in the sense that every part of man was affected by the fall. His will, his mind, his desires, every part of the human being was affected by the fall into sin and therefore he is totally depraved. Now, the reason that I'm explaining this so thoroughly this morning is because we have to understand that our predicament that's described in Psalm 8 goes far deeper than we've ever imagined. It goes far deeper than just looking around and the animals run away from us. It cuts to the core of who we are. Every part of us was affected by sin. We as a human race are not simply struggling with a small sin problem that rears its ugly head for short births throughout the day. We are sinners by nature from birth because of the consequences placed upon all of creation through the sin of our representative Adam. And the only way, listen to this, the only way that our situation can be resolved is by the intervention of another perfect representative. That's our only hope. We need a different representative. We need someone other than Adam to come and represent us. And that's why it's so significant here in verse 9 that the author begins with the words, but we do see him. We see him. We see a new representative, a different one who can go before us, between us and God. Who is this man? Well, the author names him plainly about halfway through here. You'll see he names him Jesus, the perfect son of God, the God-man, 
And he's going to spend the rest of chapter 2 outlining the implications of the fact that Jesus Christ took on flesh to be our better representative. And here in verse 9, he's going to give us three features of Christ's representation of mankind. The first feature is his humiliation. His humiliation. Look back at verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, the author's taking us right back to Psalm 8. We're going to go through Psalm 8 again, but this time with a different lens. Remember last week that I told you in its proper context, in its original context, Psalm 8 is not speaking of the Messiah, but of mankind as a whole. And so we applied it last week to mankind as a whole. But now the author's going to back up and make a point based on that larger argument, and he's going to have us look at Christ specifically in relationship to this psalm that we studied last week. He wants us to have a different focus as we go through these statements again. So we're going to go through the same statements we made last week, at least some of them, but we're going to see how they apply specifically to Christ as the better Adam, our representative. Now this first statement here, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, we said last week was a positive statement. And that's because it is a positive statement when it's applied to us as mankind generally. It's, it's marvelous that God would, would create us as the highest in the created order just under the glory of the angels that serve in his presence. That's a wonderful gift from the Lord when applied to you and me. But when it comes to Jesus, this statement is a massive problem. Because Jesus is not like us. He is eternal God. How can it be that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels? Well, to explain this, the author is going to break up the two parallel lines. And he's going to show us how when, when applied to Jesus, this first statement is negative, dealing with his humiliation, and the second statement is positive. So let's look at this statement through this lens. In the case of Christ... To be made lower than the angels is not an act of glorification, but of extreme humiliation. How can the sovereign God of the universe ever be spoken of as being made for any period of time lower than anyone, including the angels? Well, the answer to that question begins with the consideration that Jesus is the most unique being in existence. Because he's not only fully God or truly God, but is through the incarnation at the same time fully and truly man. And it's in his humanity and in his humanity alone that he willingly and joyfully lowered himself for a while below the angels. We see an explanation of this from the pen of the Apostle Paul in a famous text in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, he describes this same reality and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. This is Paul's way of describing the exact same humiliation. 
Jesus Christ was fully God. He's existed forever as eternal God. We don't have time to look at it, but that Greek word there for form means that he was God himself. Not that he was like God, but that he is God. And he's existed as God eternally, but he became man. Jesus, from his own mouth, said that he was God. In John 10.30, for example, he said, I and the Father are one. It's just one of many examples in which he declares his divinity. The author's point here for us in Hebrews is that Jesus is qualified to be our representative because he took on flesh. He became a man so that he could be the better Adam and represent us in a way that Adam failed to do. The Apostle Paul speaks of this same reality of Jesus being the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, in in context there in 1 Corinthians 15, he's making a different point. He's talking about our resurrected body, but his point still ties into what we're saying this morning. 1 Corinthians 15.45 reads, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is that last, better Adam. And just in case we are confused, this is the point in the text where he names him specifically. Namely, Jesus. This one who we see for a little while lower than the angels. The precious son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh that he might represent us. He added to his divinity full humanity, two natures in one person. Stop and let that sink in just for a moment. Have you ever contemplated how wonderful and mesmerizing it is that Jesus Christ humbled himself to the point of taking on humanity for you and me? It's unthinkable. And yet it is the eternal plan of God that his son would come and display the character of God in human flesh And we get to be the audience. We see the the full character of God on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Why would he do this? It's because he is more gracious, more merciful, more kind, and better than our minds will ever be able to grasp. We see the true character of God in the willful humiliation of his son. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever get over the humiliation that Jesus went through on purpose, joyfully, in becoming man for us. That's his humiliation, but there's a second feature here of Christ's representation of us, and it is his exaltation. His exaltation. Before bringing us to the point of his exaltation, however, the author reminds us of one further act of humiliation that he ties into this exaltation. Look back at verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. Because of the suffering of death. This is actually a modifying statement that modifies the statement that he's about to make. It's a backwards way of doing this, but he gives us the modifier first. Normally you would say the statement and then 
modify it, but he gives us this up front. He says, because of the suffering of death. He's showing us again how the life of Christ ties into the point he made in Psalm 8. The humiliation of Jesus did not stop with the incarnation. As unthinkable as it is for the perfect son of God to become a human being, that's simply the prelude to his ultimate plan and intention. In becoming a human being, he served as a representative with his perfect life. But the only way that his representation could have an eternal effect on us is if he also became our representative in death. And so the author writes, because of the suffering of death. The Apostle Paul speaks of this also in Philippians 2. We stopped short of this verse earlier. But back in Philippians 2, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul reminds us that the death of Jesus was not just any death. It was an excruciating form of execution that was masterfully perfected by the Romans in which a person's body was pushed to its limits of suffering and added to that was maximum public shame, all wrapped into one form of execution. Our Lord took on humanity and then allowed his human body to be nailed to a Roman cross. He would be displayed before the entire watching world, naked, beaten, torn, and dying. The very Son of God. Those who had no understanding spiritually of what was happening passed by and looked on him and just thought it was just another day, just another criminal being crucified. But for those who had spiritual eyes to see, they understood that what was happening was the perfect Lamb of God was being slain to pay the penalty of death for sinners. This is what he did for us in the suffering of death. And that ultimate humiliation that began with taking on flesh and then offering that flesh on the cross now results in absolute exaltation. And now he quotes for us another line from Psalm 8. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with glory and honor. This is his exaltation. We said last week that mankind is, is crowned with glory and honor in the sense that he's made in the image of God and exalted over creation. But Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because he is rightfully exalted to the right hand of God as the sovereign over all, the God-man. As both divine and in his humanity, he has earned the place of highest exaltation. He is crowned with glory and honor. And Paul also finishes his text in Philippians 2 this way. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what it is 
to say that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, exalted to the highest place so that everyone will bow the knee to the name Jesus. It's because of this that we now have a place to set our eyes when all we see around us is decaying and suffering under the corruption of sin and death. It's true. We do not yet see all things in subjection to us, but we do see Jesus, God in human flesh, who not only lived in our place, but died in our place and is even now exalted to the right hand of God. That is what we see, and it's that to which we must turn our eyes when we're tempted to despair. With this truth, the author lays the ultimate trump card in his argument that Christ is superior to the angels in every way because Jesus is now superior to the angels not only in his divinity, which has been true from eternity past, but now also in his humanity. He is doubly exalted, both natures and one person exalted to the right hand of the Father. And just for fun... Ephesians tells us that in some incomprehensible way, we too are seated with him. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a marvelous thought. We are in Christ. We are one with him because we are part of him, his body, and therefore in that spiritual sense we are seated with him even now in the heavenly places. How is it that man will ever fulfill his destiny as one, as an image bearer of God who will rule over creation? Well, now we understand it is only through and will only ever be through the Lord Jesus Christ. What will it be like when Jesus physically rules this planet? He rules now from heaven in the, in the spiritual sense, and, and all things are under his authority, but there is coming a day when, in which he will physically reign. What will that be like? I want us to read two passages from Isaiah that describes some of what it will be like when Christ reigns as king. First, in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And notice this. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. They will take the implements of warfare and turn them into farming implements because there's no longer a need for them. Isaiah 11 beginning in verse 6. 
and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. As the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Make no mistake about it, when Christ physically rules on this planet, it will be glorious. All will perfectly obey his will because the knowledge of God, as you catch it, it will be filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it does beg the question, how exactly does the representation of Jesus get applied to you and me? How does that happen? Well, that brings us to the last feature of his representation, feature number three, his substitution. His substitution. Look back at verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Those words, so that, should just jump off the page and grab a hold of your attention. These two words help us understand that all of this has been leading to one great result or one great purpose. The humiliation of Christ in both his incarnation and in his crucifixion resulted in his exaltation. But all of that was not just for show. It has a very specific purpose. But before he gives us the purpose, he's going to help us understand the means by which that purpose is accomplished. How is it that this purpose of the death of Christ ultimately is applied to you and me? He says, so that by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Understand that the crucial component in our relationship with God is grace. This entire display on the part of Christ has given us conclusive evidence that we could never earn our way to God by our own merit. The very fact that the Son of God had to go through the process of ultimate humiliation, of becoming a man and dying for our sins, shows there's no other way. That was the only way that it could be done. We were guilty before God. We were completely hopeless to save ourselves from his judgment. But what is grace? This is perhaps one of the most famous words in Christianity, and yet when we're pressed to define it, sometimes we stumble. The definition of grace is crucial for us to understand if we are to understand the application of salvation. How does salvation happen? Well, here's the technical definition of grace from Alan Cairns. He says, it is undeserved favor bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. All of those words are important. Let me read that again. Grace is undeserved favor bestowed upon those who are positively deserving of the wrath of God. 
You know, many people, when they're asked to define the word grace, will say that it means undeserved or unmerited favor. But that would mean that God is simply giving us something that we've not positively contributed to. That would picture us like going out with a, with a $100 bill and just giving it to a person at random. They didn't earn it, we just were kind and we just gave it to them. But God's grace is so much more. God's grace is his willful choice to bestow favor on people who have dedicated their lives to hating him and rebelling against his ways. He's giving favor to people who have actively earned his judgment. That's what they deserve. And so the illustration then would be of of taking that $100 bill and giving it to the person who has set themselves up most as your enemy in life, who has set out to destroy you, who hates everything about you, and freely gives it to that person. That is biblical grace. When we understand our sinful state that was ours from birth, it begins to make sense that the only way that God could accomplish our salvation is through the means of grace. Because not one of us is neutral towards God. Not one of us is a blank slate. As we said before, we were conceived in sin, born in sin because of the sin of our original parents. And because of our own sin, over and over again, we find ourselves guilty before God. And so it is that we must come to appreciate this glorious truth, this means that's called grace by which God saves his people. You and I deserve wrath, but God offers his favor through Jesus Christ. That is grace. And here's the truth. Until you come to understand that this is your condition apart from Christ, you cannot truly understand the salvation of Jesus Christ. You must come to the place where you acknowledge and understand that is me. I'm a rebel. I'm a sinner against God. And I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough in myself to be made right with God. The gospel can only be rightly understood when we first understand our true sinful condition and that it was God's grace and his own character that motivated him to save. It was not something within us, not some goodness, not some merit that he just had to have, but we were rebels against him. And because of grace, he reached down through Christ to save us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But what exactly is that work of Christ as our representative that is applied by the means of grace? Well, look back at verse 9 again. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He might taste death. The primary work of Christ as our representative is his death. Now, why is it so significant that Christ died for sinners? Well, it goes all the way back to where we began, all the way back in the garden and that original punishment that was given to Adam and Eve. You remember Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God formed the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Understand this wonderful truth. 
When God uttered those words to Adam, he knew full well that he had just committed himself to the sacrifice of his son. Because he knew that Adam would fail. It was his plan from before he ever created the world. Our first representative, Adam, sinned and brought upon us all the consequences of both spiritual death and physical death. But our second representative lived the perfect life that we failed to live, that Adam failed to live, and offered that perfect life as an offering to God, a substitution to pay the penalty of death, to pay the the penalty for the wrath of God against our sin. And the result is, is not that we would in this life no longer experience physical death, but that immediately the punishment and, and spiritual death that separated us from God would be gone, and that in the future there's coming a day when death will be completely abolished in every sense, physical and spiritual. The sting of death, the power of death are removed by Christ So that the death for the Christian is just a temporary separation of the body from the soul. But the soul goes immediately into the presence of Christ. Where the soul will await in fellowship with Christ until a new body fit for eternity is given. But in Christ, the eternal consequences of sin brought on by Adam and ourselves are completely and totally paid for. They are satisfied. That's why he is not just our representative, he is our substitute. He stood in our place in life, he stood in our place in death. That phrase, he tasted death, some have misunderstood that. It doesn't mean that he just got a a little subtle taste. It's a a phrase used throughout the the New Testament to describe death itself. He, He understood death to the fullest. He experienced death to the fullest completely. He died for us as a representative, as a substitute. Now, don't let that word at the end of the sentence throw you off. Because he says there, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Don't misunderstand what is meant there. In fact, there are other places in Scripture where similar things are said, like Romans 5, 18. So then, as through one transgression... There resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Understand, first of all, as we think about this word everyone, that there are legitimate universal benefits of the atonement of Christ, such as this, common grace. Where does common grace come from? It was purchased by Christ. As common grace, God cares for all people. He causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. He provides for them. It also purchased the general call of the gospel, that the gospel goes out to the whole world. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the Bible is also clear that the atonement of Christ is only efficacious or effectively applied to those who are Christ by repentance and faith. Understand there is a difference in the representation of Adam and Jesus. Adam was a human being and represented all of mankind. All are in Adam as human beings. Jesus stands as the representative of all who are in him. And those who are in Christ are true believers who have turned from sin and put their faith in Christ. So he is our representative, 
but not just universally in the sense that all people are just saved automatically. That is a heresy called universalism. But instead, he is the representative of all who come to him in repentance and faith. This is what Jesus says in John 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and listen to this, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, speaking of Gentiles. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. But what Jesus states here clearly is that he was laying down his life on purpose for a group of people here identified as his sheep. And his sheep are those who know his voice and who follow him. You might ask, well, how do I make sure that I'm one of these sheep? How can I be included in those who are represented by Christ's substitutionary death for me? Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The Bible says that if you will recognize that your current condition is what we described it to be this morning, that you're a sinner separated from God and that you have no hope in and of yourself, and if you will believe that Jesus Christ really was the Son of God, God in human flesh, who lived the perfect life and died as a sacrifice on the cross only to rise again on the third day, the Bible says if you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be in Christ and he will be your representative, your substitute. So the response for you then this morning is to confess your sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find him full of grace to bestow favor on you because of what he's accomplished. Not because of you, but in spite of you. Just as he's done for me and every other believer in this room. But as we close our time together, I just want to turn your attention to one application. One response. It's simple. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. All around us we see nothing but destruction and decay brought on by our sin. We find ourselves not only discouraged and disheartened by the difficulties and troubles in the world at large, but by the difficulties and troubles that are in our own hearts and that are in our own homes. What do we do? How do we respond when everything in the world seems to have gone wrong? Well, the author of Hebrews says, we look to him. We look to Jesus. We see him. Yes, we have ruined it. Yes, we have made an utter mess of things. But Jesus Christ is our rescuer. When you sin, look to Jesus. When you are crushed underneath the weight of some difficulty or trial in life, look to Jesus. When you are, are terrified for a moment over the prospect of physical death, look to Jesus. That means that we have to discipline our minds as Christians to take our eyes off of the world and the things that so easily distract us and to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. How do we do that? 
very simply, we understand the character of God and therefore we turn our mind to who he is, what he's accomplished, and we memorize the scripture that he's given to us and we turn our mind constantly throughout the day to what he has said is true. And every time temptation to worry or, 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 or stress or whatever it may be comes, we turn our attention away from those circumstantial things to Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has said. And we do it every day. Today and the next and the next and the next until these words go from being spiritual to physical. Because right now when he says we do see him, he means in a spiritual sense. But friends, remember one day that will be literal and we will see him face to face. We will look on the face of the perfect son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a day that will be. But until that day, may we look to him over and over again as we open his precious word and hold on until he comes for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, all we can say to that is come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We're so grateful that we can look to you and your word, your spirit testifying in our hearts that we are your children for those who are in Christ. And yet we do long for the day. Our hope is firmly planted in the day in which our faith will become sight. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, but until then, hold us fast. Help us to walk according to your will Help us to know the deep love of the Father for us that's demonstrated in you, the Son, and the marvelous grace that is ours who are in Christ. Help us never to get over it and help us to stay the course until you return to bring us to yourself. We ask it in your precious holy name. Amen.